my name is Jason Openo. I'm the Director of Teaching and Learning at Medicine Ag College, and welcome to another edition of the Tool Crib. I'm here with Chad Flynn and Sally Vinden, and I'm, I'm just really thrilled to be here to talk about backwards design. So, Chad, why don't you uh, introduce our guest speaker today? Sure. Thanks, Jason. Uh, so, as you, most of you know, my name is Chad Flynn, and I'm the Dean of Trades Technology here at Medicine Hat College. And I'm absolutely thrilled, beyond thrilled, to introduce a very, very close good friend of mine, Dr. Sally Vinden, to uh, to the show today. So we're we're going to be we're going to start with a discussion in backwards design. But anytime Sally and I get talking about anything to do with pedagogy, it goes down a lot of fun trails. So Sally, why don't you just give us a little intros to who you are, where you work, what you do, all that fun stuff. Okay, yeah, great. So first of all, thanks so much for um, inviting me to this conversation today. Um, you know you know me well enough to, to know if there's an opportunity to talk about teaching, curriculum, pedagogy, especially backward design, I'm there and really look forward to those trails that we're going to wander off down today. So, um, yeah, I started my career as a hairstylist many moons ago in, in the UK and then emigrated to Canada um, almost actually almost 30 years ago now. So really, it's like, you know, I am truly Canadian apart from this accent. Um, and I was really fortunate uh, soon after I moved to Canada, I actually um, started some auxiliary teaching at Malaspina University College. Um, that led to my position as a hairstylist instructor for many years and then the chair of the hairstylist program. And we're you know, fortunate, Chad will know from his time in BC that we take a um, we take a course for to get our teaching diploma, which is called the Provincial Instructors Diploma Program. And that was my first really intro to curriculum and pedagogy. And that just led me straight into a master's and somehow I got really cooked into lifelong learning and ended up going for my PhD, which I defended uh, last year. So if anybody's looking for some reading over Christmas, there's uh, 220 pages dissertation, all based on trades instructors perceptions. Anyway, so what do I do now? I'm currently a curriculum teaching and learning specialist at Vancouver Island University. And I have a really lovely position that bridges between the trades faculty and a teaching and learning center, which is the center for innovation and excellence in learning. So it's quite a unique position. Um, it's, um, it's been going now for about two years and it's, it's had this wonderful opportunity where it was piloted and it's sort of grown. And now we're in a place where the culture has shifted within the faculty to actually make really good use of this position and growing what it does. Um, but I will just drop into the conversation is as of January 4th, I'll be moving into the associate dean role here in the Faculty of Trade. Congratulations. So Congratulations. Pretty excited. Yeah, yeah, it's an acting associate dean role, but I'm really looking forward to that new adventure. So that's, that's me. So, so exciting. And I'm so, so huge. Congratulations. It's going to be awesome. And it's funny, it, it brings me back to some discussions we've had before, where when I think when we were both teaching still, and we were like, it'd be nice if we had people were thinking like we do in those kind of administrative positions. And here we finally are able to make those changes. So it's it's awesome to see that kind of change happening. Mm -hmm. 
Um, Absolutely. Before we start talking about backward design, though, one thing that I wanted to to maybe get you to talk a little bit about was a couple of years ago, this, this wonderful thing called, well, not wonderful thing, this thing called COVID hit. And then right before that, people have been talking about how there is no way that trades could be taught online, that there's zero chance that that could be done. You, however, even before COVID had done that, you had actually mm-hmm. designed something. I just wonder if you could speak a little bit about your second year hairstyling program. Yeah, absolutely. And and for anybody listening in, um, as this conversation progresses, you'll you'll find Chad and I sort of referencing back to different times when we've spoken. And we've actually we actually connected, I believe it was very early in 2019. And the reason we connected was because I launched a hairstylist apprenticeship level two program that was fully online. And I happened to post that on Twitter and Chad saw the Twitter post and uh, tweeted back and that started our connection because there were few folks out there that actually thought it was possible to teach anything trades related related on an online platform and so to add a little bit of context here the trades um, the apprenticeship for level two hairstylists is traditionally a five-week face-to-face course so students would be in session um, four or five days a week for five weeks but the hairdressing industry really pushed back on that the level two was a new stepping stone towards the red seal and the industry said look the nature of our industry does not work around stylists leaving for five weeks because they'll lose their clientele which is is very true. So the ITA, so the Industry Training Authority in BC put out, um, uh, there was a few uh, grants going forward for innovative approaches to apprenticeship training. So we looked at that and I and agreed, yes, it could be done. So I was very fortunate to have quite a lot of support around me at that time and fortunate as well to attend the Digital Pedagogies Lab in Toronto and sort of be around people that I'm going to say think digitally. So when we're thinking in analog, we see all these barriers. When we're thinking about traditional face-to-face apprenticeship models, in a way, it really blocks a view of what is possible. Um, So just being around different people, hearing different ideas, different possibilities of how this could work with an LMS, And also at that time, this was pre-COVID, so everything I did was going to be asynchronous. There was no remote learning through Zoom. So what we did was decided that the apprentices would enroll, would have 12 weeks, 10 hours a week of asynchronous learning, which could be done in their own time. There was no set times whatsoever. And what it did was it situated their training as such, or this level two apprenticeship in their workplace. So all of their practical assignments were carried out on their real live clients in the salon. They would video what they were, their work. They would video the whole competency that they had performed and upload that. And so it 
people had thought, well, we're just going to do the theory online. But no, we did the practical online. And what we learned from that was that the students loved it. Once they got over the initial of hurdle of how do I video myself? I only have a cell phone. How do I upload this? What platform are we using? They found themselves in this situation where they would watch their own work and go, that's not good enough. I'm going to redo that. So they were rewatching their videos. Now, for me, on the other side of things, there were 20 students enrolled in this course. And on the other side of things, I could watch that competency being performed from start to finish because I could fast forward it, I could stop it, and I could provide such specific feedback and say, you know, at three points, three minutes, 17 seconds, can you tell me about the decision you made when you approached this in that direction? Or, you know, for example, so there was this opportunity where the mindset around online learning for trades was, yeah, but it's only going to be at a very sort of surface level. It's going to be multiple choice questions. And actually this platform, the learning management system with technology and thinking about designing the program with technology in mind allowed us to have a much, much sort of deeper understanding of students' levels of competency. It allowed them to have a much deeper understanding about what they were learning as well. So um, yeah, it was surprises, many surprises. And um, for us, it put us in a really good place so that when COVID came along, mm -hmm. we already had this experience, which then we could sort of share out with others in our faculty and, and you know, share the, the same kind of thinking. You know, that is so interesting and cool. I, I, there's a couple of things that I want to talk about that. Um, I took a look at for, you know, first of all, congratulations on your dissertation, by the way. Uh, that's really you. good. 220 pages. <laughs> it's, it's short. It's short. I was told, I was told that I had a robust dissertation, which just means that it was really long. But, but what, <laughs> one of the things I did was took a look at, uh, you know, took a look at the strategic plans for Canadian colleges and institutes prior to the pandemic to look at, at what role, uh, what role online learning played. And, and you can see that it's not there. It's really not there. I mean, it, despite the fact that all Canadian colleges and institutes, apparently, according to the best evidence that's available, they were all involved in online learning, but not so, not, not so in these academic plans, not even mentioned, you know, mm -hmm. so, so they were unprepared when COVID hit. And so you're really got a model there. And, and what I really liked about the, what I really liked about what you were talking about was, you know, how students could talk out loud. You know, they could talk out loud, they could talk about the process that they're going through learning. And then you could provide them feedback, you know, that verbal feedback. Like I try to give verbal feedback to all of my students that I teach online. I record short videos yeah. for them, provide them yeah. video. And that just makes things go down so much more smoothly than if, I, if they just read it in a text. Like it's just so much warmer and, and it, mm -hmm. it just builds so much more connection on that. 
But I'm wondering, you said that the students loved it. So why did they love it so much? Like, did you, well, did you, were you ever just kind of like diagnose like what they loved about it so much? Yeah, because I, because it was funded through the ITA, we needed to write quite an extensive report on it as well, which was hugely valuable because it, you know, it meant that, um, you know, we were doing surveys with students throughout and providing so many opportunities to hear their voices at different times. So we did collect the data that has sort of shaped what we do in the future. Um, to answer the question about what made it so valuable to them and, and, you know, acknowledging that the first three weeks online were clumsy as well. Nobody was having a lot of fun for the first three weeks. The industry were questioning the, the, you know, even the capability of anybody learning through an online format. So the industry were not on board with that either. Then they've got their apprentices that are the first generation to learn hairstyling through this, you know, platform. Although we need to acknowledge that Instagram has been providing and YouTube has been providing online education for so long and and hairstylists were learning from there as are welders as are yeah. carpenters so it wasn't really as revolutionary as what it sort of you know it looked like in the apprenticeship world but for them once they realized that there was this space for their own voice this space for their own work so when you're in a classroom and there's 18 of you only a few people get to speak let's be honest, there's just not time for everybody to, to speak. But in the online platform, if it's designed in a way that questions that are asked by the, you know, the instructor, by the facilitator, require the uniqueness in your voice, like not the regurgitation of facts, but we really want to, mm -hmm. you know, hear what's your opinion, what was your experience. And once students got into the flow of that, they absolutely loved it. And there was one um, assignment that I uh, put out there that was around professionalism. And you know, if I go back to sort of traditional practices when we taught professionalism, I'm going to say maybe five, eight years ago, we used to have students read a chapter, maybe role play and those kind of things. And we thought we were doing a great job. But if I think I posed about five questions about what do you value? describe professionalism and, and then go into how does that apply in this context? What would it look in, like in that context? And when I read, when I actually started reading what these students views, their values on professionalism, what they thought it looked like, what it felt like, um, what, you know, the difference it made, these students were writing more valuable material than what was actually in the textbook. So, what the online platform did was it provided this space for them. They were actually able to write. So instead of sitting in rows in a classroom and saying, well, what do you think about professionalism? You know, chat to your group and then share out. They're in their own space. They're writing away. And they had so much knowledge because they'd lived it mm -hmm. and, and they could talk about why it was valuable and where they, you know, areas that 
needed improvement. So that was one of the, I think that was really key to students that they realized they were given this opportunity to share their views on things. And as you mentioned, Jason, they, um, the, the learning management system offers all of these different means, these multiple means of representation. So if you're not comfortable writing, just submit an audio mm. of yeah. your yeah. views on professionalism, or maybe you want to create an infographic, then you create an infographic. So we have this, whereas again, in the classroom, we were limited because we weren't using technology in that way. But I'm just gonna, <laughs> talk about the practical skills. Again, when students perform practical skills in a setting where there's 18 people or maybe 16 working on live clients all at the same time, the instructor only sees like minutes of each student's work and they can't provide feedback on anything that they haven't really seen but students suddenly were able to replay their videos and sort of say can you have a look at 16 minutes and 20 seconds notice when I was working in this area mm. you can see that you know that something my um, distribution isn't accurate but I don't know why it's not accurate so students were using this as well and I think they were equally as surprised how what a meaningful learning opportunity this was for them so it became a form of self-assessment somewhat as well for them hugely so you know that's a really good point chad it's self-assessment and also self-reflection and if i compare that to um traditional classrooms when we you know going back a while when we all decided you know self-reflective self-reflective practice is what takes us from hands-on learning to experiential learning. Yeah. If you remove the reflection, you've just got regurgitation. Um, but what this did on the online learning platform, instead of reflective practice being an add-on or self-assessment, here you go, take your rubric, do your self-assessment, it was authentic because... Mm -hmm. They had the video, I had the video, we could talk, we could watch it together. And I think that it was like a lived curriculum. The lived curriculum was so different to, you know, the curriculum as text, really. It's interesting because it's a lot of it like that, like I said, I, I feel there's some a lot of self-assessment in there, but then with the reflection aspect of it, and it's funny that you mentioned that because our last guest that Jason and I had on is our carpentry instructor. And they do daily reflections with their carpentry students from first year to fourth year. And yeah. it's just been absolutely transformational. So any of the way that we can integrate some form of reflection into training, mm -hmm. and into, especially into trades training, it's huge. And then I love the idea that it doesn't always have to be in the written form. So like you said, it doesn't, it, they can, mm -hmm. they can speak it, they can do a video on it. They can, I love that idea. We, we should talk to Paul about that because uh, he was talking when, when Paul was talking about his carpentry students reflecting, he's like, they hate writing. Yeah. Mm -hmm. They hate writing. But, and so maybe they'll just be more comfortable taking a quick video. Totally. Taking a quick video of, yeah. of this is what I did today. This is what I'm thinking about. And you submit that. And that, that you know, so it gives them a chance to, to work in a format that perhaps is not only more comfortable for them, but elicits more of their personality. 
because that was one, another one of the things that that Paul was using. It elicits a little bit of their personality and their creativity. Mm -hmm. And the other thing as well in this sort of reflection piece, the other opportunity there was here was, you know, I would ask students to predict outcomes mm -hmm. as well. So we have, you know, the, the wonderful thing about, you know, fully online is that everything is, I think it was Nikki Rain that, that describes it. The great thing about um, online learning is it's like being in an autonomous car. Everybody mm. gets in the car together. The journey is already planned. But teaching in the classroom, teaching face-to-face -face is like you are the bus driver. So you're all going on the same journey, but you're constantly having to write things up, bring up PowerPoints, bring up YouTubes, bring up or whatever you're doing. I'm just using those as examples. But the great thing is everything is pre-planned on there. So your time and your energy is responding and asking questions as the conversation evolves. So when you do something like um, have students predict the outcome of this scenario and you can use, you know, the graphics that you need, then you can go deeper into that problem solving because now you can bring in this other variable. So, um, yeah, it was, I think that was the thing that students loved about it as well. They never felt like this was just repetition of reading the textbooks. Like I would say, if you want to look for resources there on this topic, you know, the textbook, mm. this textbook, you'll find it on this pages, this textbook, or you can search elsewhere. And, and that was a huge shift for them. It recognized them as, you know, they are in industry already. They're already working in industry and their voices and their knowledge was being drawn upon rather than them being told, go and read in a textbook what you already know, but mm -hmm. use their wording of it and then put it into a multiple choice test. So although we did do multiple choice tests, they were only worth 10% of mm. overall grade. And we did hang on to them because, of course, all these students were preparing for their red seal. There's yeah. only two levels in hairstylists. Yeah. So we needed to hang on to those for that reason. So we're 20 minutes in and we oh. have already gone down a rabbit trail. <laughs> so, <laughs> Sorry about that. But, no, I'll, that I'll, try, I'll try to bring us back to the main trail. <laughs> all right. Go so, ahead, Jason. Sally, you were kind of a, you were ahead of your time for COVID pandemic trades instruction moving online. The experience that you've just been talking about for the past twenty minutes, did you backwards design that? Absolutely. Yeah. So how did you? Absolutely. How did you? Because you you went through a rough period. There were some three weeks where it was pretty rough. But explain uh, and and how did so explain backwards design? But also you were successful, and you've been talking about this really cool. Uh, project for the last you know 20 minutes or so and it was successful was how did backwards design contribute to success yeah, really good question and I cannot take all the credit for this I've got to mention Liesl Kanak who was the um, director of teaching and learning at VIU at that time hugely supportive very very knowledgeable on um 
you know, online learning and other colleagues here at VIU. I mean, you know, I'm taking the credit for it, but really it's like you need these people, you need these people and, and, and they were wonderful. And so without backward design, well, let's talk about with backward design is that I spent a lot of time up front really clearly um, designing the learning outcomes. So trades programs in BC, the ITA provides us with program outlines. And as you know, the program outline aligns with the RSOS, so the Red Seal Occupational Standard. And when I first learned to learn about teaching and even in my um, PIDP program, I learned to create my lessons plans using an approach called DACOM. And what DACOM does is take a competency and deconstructs it into these sort of measurable units. Now, and then it de deconstructs it further into teachable tasks. And what can happen then is that the focus is very much on these tasks and then kind of building up to a competency or a unit of a competency. And if we teach that way, I feel quite strongly that we're really not, we're really not preparing students for the complexity of the industries that they're going into. So the wonderful thing about backwards design is it focuses on learning outcomes first. And I'll just sort of clarify what a learning outcome is to me. So learning outcomes are not what you do in the course. This is not what about the activities, the projects or anything. It's not what you do in the course. It's what you can do as the result of the course. So as you know, the learner will be able to, by the end of this course, and they're the big, the big competencies up there. So they reflect more what you would anticipate the learner to be doing in industry. So they haven't been deconstructed, they've actually been reconstructed into that complexity of industry. So having those very clear learning outcomes is spending time there is it's almost like they're your guiding principles. Every decision you make after that needs to be able to draw a line back to meeting those learning outcomes. And I think when you design a course online, like we're saying, it's all designed ahead of time, that you need to be have that, where are you going with this course? Because if you've got 12 weeks to fill, you can fill them all with very exciting activities and cool YouTubes and then I like this and I like that and I know the students like this but where are you leading them and of course with backward design you know where you're leading them and then of course the next stage I wish we had a graphic here so we could sort of show if you look think about an upside down triangle and on the left hand side you have your learning outcomes that's number one the next place you go is to the right hand side to the corner of the triangle on the right hand side and that's your assessments so when you start creating your assessments and go okay these are my learning outcomes 
How will I know? How can I assess that? And again, you want to assess it without deconstructing it. You want to assess it at like the capstone level where these um, the complexity exists. So they're very high level assessments. And um, if by creating rubrics, like I love a three point rubric. And um, so a rubric that really says, what does this look like? So if you're telling this, you know, if students are being told that they, um, they need to achieve a level of competency, is the range of competency, like is there a range of accuracy between one and three centimeters? Well, in hairdressing, absolutely not. If you cut somebody's hair and the balance is out by one or three centimeters, that is not accurate. So you need to actually, <laughs> you should see these two, these two here, they're laughing. <laughs> they're laughing, they're rubbing their heads and laughing. Um, anyway, so I, I love the fact that when we create the assessment after the learning outcomes, we're really narrowing down exactly what it is we're measuring in great detail, what we're looking for. And even in our areas of professionalism, as well as technical skills and knowledge, it's all there in that rubric, which of course is shared with the learner. But again, this is directing, okay, so now, in order for the students to meet these outcomes and to be successful in these assessments, they are the, your guiding, yeah, guiding principles as well of how you're going to design each week of that, that course. And I think without those really clear, clear direction there guiding that journey, what happens is you'll hear students say there was so much content in that course, or you'll hear instructors say, I just cannot get through all of the content. And the reason I believe why they have that problem is because they're taking from the um, program outlines, they're taking everything almost as checkboxes. There's lists of content that needs to be covered, but, in industry, those that content doesn't live in isolation from each other. It lives in this complexity. So we're all recreating that. So Jason, I'm not sure whether I answered that or whether that had any clarity to it whatsoever. Oh, I think it did. I think it hit it. You know, I mean, so many times during the course of a course, students might lose their way. Right. They might lose as to where they're going. They might not understand the purpose of why certain things are there. And uh, sometimes, especially at the beginning of the design of a course, instructors, every instructor that I know, of, doesn't matter the discipline, the tyranny of content, mm -hmm. the tyranny of content is a really problem. So if you've got so if you're approaching it from an instructor's point of view and you're facing this this uh, monster, the tyranny of content, and then you're facing it from a student's point of view and you don't actually know where you're headed in the course, backwards design sounds like an approach that can help us navigate both of those problems. Absolutely, you know, absolutely. Um, I mean, 
I just can't say enough about it because I had been teaching for, you know, 15 years before I was introduced to backward design. And I've given a shout out to Lisa Knack and, and Bill Robeson, Tina Reimer here at VIU, Kathleen Bortlin. These are people that introduced um, me to backward design, but also you know, it's very ongoing. The first time you hear about it, it sounds like a good idea, but it's overwhelming mm -hmm. for folks. Like I've just been um, facilitating a three-week workshop or three, it's spanned over three weeks, but it's only been three short sessions with trades faculty as an introduction to backward design. And it requires lots of work up front. And I think one of the challenges we face in trades education is that there isn't necessarily enough time for this to be yeah. done. So I think in many um, of the post-secondary institutions that trades instructors will have that one month a year where they get to do um, PDCD or whatever, but it's been sort of a maintenance thing. Whereas, um, to actually look at your courses that you need to design them rather than to follow what already exists. And one of the luxuries I had because the ITA funded the level two hairstylist was that I was given six months to not only design this online course, but to do the recruitment, to do all of the marketing for it. So, I mean, that was a huge luxury. And <laughs> But now that I've done it once, I've actually created an online course for, I'm thinking of um, international projects in Kenya, myself and Kathleen Bortlin, we've been working with Humber and designing um, yes. actually an online course. And it is a CBET, so competency-based education and training, but we've actually used the, the backward design model there as well. So the thing is, once you've, got this system in play and you're familiar with the, working with the LMS, I think that the time commitment lessens as you know, over the, over the years. Well, that's a huge issue that, I mean, we, you and I've had this discussion so many times, Sally, about how the out of industry on a Friday into the classroom on a Monday morning, and you've, you're given a bit load of content and just told, okay, here's the outcomes, teach to it. And I think I don't think any trades instructor when you when you say backwards design, you say you start with the end in mind. I think most trades instructors will say, of course, that obviously that makes sense. Mm -hmm. The difference to me is that the next step after those outcomes is the assessment, as opposed to generally when I first started teaching, it was I had the outcomes and then I tried to find the content to fill those outcomes. Yeah. And then the assessments comes along. And then you'll hear a lot of trade students too complain that, well, we're being assessed on things that we weren't even taught yet because because you're building these assessments later on. So Backwards design to me seems like it takes care of all that because if you're building your assessments and you're aligning your resources to the assessments, then you won't have that disconnect. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And, and anybody that sort of Googles now the uh, backward design, Wiggins and McTie um, backward design, will see there's a triangle graphic and it's got bi-directional arrows between each corner of the triangle. And that is because, because it really is this back and forth process that you go between all of these three corners when your development alignment between your outcomes, your assessment and your teaching 
um, activities is, is the core principle of backward design. And I think sometimes, you know, everything we do really needs to have an intended outcome as mm -hmm. such. You know, I find myself applying the, you know, the mindset of um, outcome based as such to many, like even meetings. If you call a meeting, what is your intended outcome when, you know, when, when information comes to, you know, what, what is the intended outcome of these conversations as such? And so you start applying it more to other areas of your life as well. And I think really the core piece here is intentional. Mm -hmm. So when we, what you were just saying, Chad, it does allow us having those clear outcomes, having those clear, those assessments already pre-designed, but it makes that journey then that we take the students on towards the end, very intentional. And how can we be intentional when our assessments are a stack of multiple choice questions yeah. that changes our intention because we're then preparing people for multiple choice tests so going back to those assessments again and and um this is where we really if we look at our outcomes and then we really look at okay how can we create um, assessments that are authentic which means that they are complex that they reflect the you know situations in that particular industry that means a critical thinking has got to be applied in the decision making and the process and even the procedures that are taking when we create I think various forms of assessment or multiple forms of assessment, then we bring the complexity in. So it, it also requires, um, for some folks, it's going to require them to expand their ideas around assessment. What I also love about it is it really shifts the mindset. And I'm going to share, you shared with Jason and I an article. And so I'm just going to share a quote. And this kind of sums up the whole idea of, of the mindset shift. And it says here, to put in an odd way, too many teachers focus on the teaching and not the learning. They spend most of their time thinking first about what they will do, what materials they will use, and what they will ask students to do, rather than first considering what the learner will need in order to accomplish the learning goals. Mm -hmm. So, so often, and I'm, I'm completely guilty of this, is when I first started teaching the outcomes, and then it becomes, okay, what can I use to broadcast out? And we lose so much pedagogically when we just become broadcasters and become speakers mm -hmm. and lectures. And I mean, we could do a whole series on how I think the lecture needs to die um, on all that. And then I'm reading a book right now called The Future of Teaching by Guy Claxton. He talks a lot about that. Where we focus way too much on our teaching and not enough on the learning. And I think yeah. in trades, it's very much like that. We, we've, we're subject matter experts. So we're telling our students, so oh, this is what you need to know. This is what I've done. This is... And we're not allowing our students into the process. But with backward design, the way I see it is we're, it's creating a map of how we want our students to get to those outcomes. So it's, it's student-centered, which I love. And mm -hmm. then it also, it's how can they learn along the way as opposed to us? How can we broadcast our knowledge out? Yeah. And you know what? When I first taught in this fully online environment, so I keep stressing this because this was not remote delivery. This was not you know, emergency remote delivery in a Zoom classroom. So 
It was you know, premeditated online delivery, completely asynchronous. And what was like, what just made me smile every time I went into that LMS was the fact that it was like a hose pipe coming towards me. Mm. And it was the learners that were there. It was their voices. They never actually heard my voice unless I recorded feedback or less I'd done like a little mini tutorial they heard my voice then but it was it was the fact that we talk about learner centered and we try and you know again we do these add-ons where we try and make the the traditional classroom become very learner centered and all of these things are really really good I'm, I'm not dismissing them whatsoever but one of the things is with backward design is again everything is pre-planned up front so it's there the problems are there the problem-based learning is there mm -hmm. and then the learners are coming to that they're learning from that experience rather than being the recipients of somebody that is more knowledgeable than them so it completely all these things that we've been talking about for many years uh, around learner centered approaches around facilitating instead of you know mm -hmm. lecturing or sage on the stage all those kind of things backward design to me was is that missing piece of that puzzle it, it was this you know it was the slice of the pie that for me brought it all together so one of the one of the metaphors in the article you know on backwards design is travel planning you know, and I'm like, I'm dying to travel, right? Uh, the, the uh, you know, one of our folks right next door, they were supposed to be leaving for Mexico today. Of course, that's, that's been, that's been canceled with the latest travel advisories. There was a, you know, I had personally had a hope that I might be able to go to the Hague in, in February of next year. That's not going to happen. So maybe it's just because I'm dreaming of traveling right now <laughs> while it's minus 25 outside. But one, of the, one of the metaphors that they use is travel planning. And, and so I'm thinking that this is a useful metaphor for people who are like, okay, backwards design, you know, how do I think about this and all of these things. Mm -hmm. Perhaps travel planning is a, is a metaphor for, for people to really uh, grasp backwards design in a new way. Like, you know, yeah. what, how does that mean? What does that mean? I mean, Chad was, was hitting it earlier, but but, you know, this, this idea of travel planning. Yeah, yeah. And I think that one of the things is that this, the, I think this is a really good metaphor, but also a really good example. So when we book our holiday to Mexico or whatever, we, we book it, but we don't pre-shape our assessment of it. So it's all in our mind. So we, we book the holiday, you know, what are those, what are we measuring about it when we decide where we're going to stay, when we decide whether those flights are the ones that work with their time schedule, we're making lots of decisions um, and we're very subjective about the whole thing. You know, if we meet nice people and the people are nice in the restaurants and the weather's great and all this kind of stuff, then we come back and say, oh, we had a fabulous time in Mexico, but there's so many variables that we haven't considered. Why did we have such a good time this time? Mm. Whereas, mm. and that happens with teaching. If you have your 
you know, your outcomes, you know where you want to take these students, but you haven't created your assessments. Sometimes we rate our success teaching by the subjectivity of our students. Like if we have a class that they're really, you know, bright students, we know we get those classes, you know, that come in and they're great. They're very sociable. You have good rapport with them. And you just go, that was fabulous. And they all did really well on that multiple choice test that the Red Seal insists they do. So you look at it as successful, but really your measures are going all over the place, like your subjectivity. So are we like, did those learners, even though they knew where they were going to the Red Seal, it's just a bit like us going to Mexico. No, we're going to a beach and a hotel. But we, I believe that that piece around assessment is the piece that we may, if we use the metaphor of travel, we may not have pre, pre um, you know, we might not have our criteria there. And I think having that criteria, so we know as a learner, what is expected? What's expected? What is it they're looking for? You know, it'd probably be ha handy for the Mexican tourist board if we actually gave them air criteria ahead of time. So do you know what I mean? Yeah. I think it removes the subjectivity out of it, but I think having the criteria there in our assessments and our rubrics up front, that's the piece that really gives the information about the journey that we're going on. So I want to be cognizant of our time because we're, we're running, starting to run out of it. And that all these conversations always end up like this. <laughs> if I was, and I am, but if I was an instructor and I wanted to get started in backward design, where would you suggest somebody starts as a trades instructor, Sally? Yeah, yeah, wonderful question. So I would go to, if I was an instructor, whatever institution you're at, go along to your teaching and learning center and say, hey, I've heard about backward design. I hear there's some people that have used it in trades. Um, drop the names in because then the teaching and learning centers can actually connect mm -hmm. and talk about their experiences. But ask your teaching and learning center to put on um, a couple of workshops, a series of workshops that will take you through the process. Don't try it alone because it's going yeah. to be a confusing journey and your teaching and learning experts can really simplify that journey. And the other piece of the puzzle is um, really recognizing the uniqueness of trades education. We need to navigate our program outlines and our Red Seal occupational standards and how do we um, actually do that bridging between those and designing our learning outcomes? And that's where you really need somebody that sits in both um, camps of trades education, but mm -hmm. also curriculum teaching and pedagogy, you know, specialists. Otherwise, um, that, could, that piece can get very bumpy. Awesome. And like you're saying, like you, I, I know you put on these workshops. They're not necessarily long half day sessions are they like when you put no. them on they're short to the point because that's always a concern with trades instructors is they they're front facing six hours out of the day their their workload is heavy in front of the students so how do they find the time but if if we got short manageable sessions then that's something that can be done 
Yeah, absolutely. When COVID hit, our teaching and learning centre here, uh, Bill, Tina, Kathleen, all the team up there, Maxwell as well, they put on one week intensives, which were called um, changing course to online. We had lots of metaphors about sailing and rough seas. And, but basically, <laughs> it, the core principle of it was backward design. And um, so that was five days. You were in session for an hour in the morning. You were assigned um, homework to do that had to be uploaded by one o'clock in the afternoon. And then there was a debrief. You did that for the first three days. So the first day was outcomes. The second day was assessment. The third day was looking at your teaching and learning activities. Thursday, you had a one-on-one -on -one with a consultant. And then Friday, everybody shared out. So they had this outline. They'd been through the whole process. That's wonderful if everybody's got a PDCD week. Right. In reality, you're trying to do this alongside teaching. So what we did just recently, which we finished up this morning, was an hour and a half on a Friday morning, three consecutive weeks, week one, learning outcomes, week yeah. two, assessment, and week three, teaching and learning strategies and looking at what technology can be used and things like that. So an hour and a half and using an LMS as well. So there's resources and there's a few very short, just, uh, you know, conversations going on on there as well. So not a big time commitment whatsoever. Well, I suspect this won't be the end of the conversation that between you and myself and Jason. Well, I, hope not. <laughs> I hope not. I have, I am, I am better from having spent time in this conversation today and I am deeply grateful for your time, Sally. Thanks a lot. Well, thank you so much. I, I feel like all I did was talk for, we, we talk about the lecture and I'm just like, did I just lecture? <laughs> no. That was the last. <laughs> oh, Sally, it's always like one of my favorite things to do is to talk to you. So, and then with bringing Jason in on, on this now, it's just like, this is just one of those yeah. amazing moments. So thank you so much. Mm -hmm. uh, this won't be the last time that we reach out to you and have you back on. And thank you. yeah, thank you so. Both. Thank you so much for, like, as always, my mind's blown and spinning and I got lots I got to think about. Jason, in the new year, we got to maybe talk about how we can possibly do something yeah. like this. Absolutely. I think there's going to be lots of opportunities because we were, you and Ch Chad, you and I were just part of a conversation where, yeah. you know, where we're looking at competency profiles. And so competency, really identifying the competency profiles. So it seems like backwards design, you know, just working on some of our courses uh, with one of our programs, like really redefining what our program learning outcomes really starting there. Now let's go move to assessments. Very good theory and like very clear directions as to how to get started. I, again, thank you. I hope you have a great weekend, Sally, and a, and a wonderful holiday season. Look forward to talking to you in the new year. Yeah, I can't wait. Yeah, these conversations always leave me just like thinking that this we're so lucky to be in education with yes. so many, you know, I know this is an overused term, but like minded of others, I find so many of us really uh, looking for these opportunities now to make the learning experience so much more valuable to, for our students. Absolutely. Teaching and learning and teaching and learning and traits. I think it's the most exciting place to be right now. Mm -hmm. I totally agree absolutely absolutely well i want to okay. thank both of you and i want to wish you both a happy holidays because that's by the time people hear this it will be after the holidays but for us here right now we're about to go into it hopefully things warm up a little bit for us here in medicine hat 
What's the weather like over there, Sally? Is it not as um, well, it's cold today? It was minus one when I left home. <laughs> <laughs> my, my computer right now is I'd, telling me it's minus 20, but whatever. Uh, I'd be I'd be wearing shorts. <laughs> yeah, you would. Yeah, yeah, I can believe it. Awesome. Well, thank you so much, Sally. Thank you, Jason. And we'll see you all next time. <laughs>